I've always wanted to meet Ray Bradbury. You think of the writer of uh, those excellent science fiction stories and those memoirs and those autobiographical tales and, of course, the novel of the future, a bleak future, Orwellian Fahrenheit. I always get the numbers mixed up. It's 451. <laughs> Ray Bradbury is my guest who happens to be in town because visiting, revisiting his hometown, Waukegan, Illinois, where he spoke for the Library Association, and we'll come to that in a moment, his thoughts about books and reading and the nature of censorship today and the nature of everything today, of ourselves, because he speaks always of the human condition. And I thought for, as an overture, a prologue to our conversation, a reading, just a piece of his very beautiful novel, memoir, childhood, Dandelion Wine, which I assume has a great deal of autobiographical touches to it. Suppose we hear the very beginning, the reading of that. It's about a 12-year-old kid, Douglas Spaulding, who's full of life and vitality, a certain moment in his life when his best friend's father is about to move elsewhere, and he wonders if he'll ever see this kid again. And so here's how it opens. The facts about John Huff, age 12, are simple and soon stated. He could pathfind more trails than any Choctaw or Cherokee since time began. Could leap from the sky like a chimpanzee from a vine. Could live underwater two minutes and slide 50 yards downstream from where you last saw him. The baseballs you pitched him, he hit in the apple trees, knocking down harvests. He could jump six-foot orchard walls, swing up branches faster and come down fat with peaches, quicker than anyone else in the gang. He ran laughing. He sat easy. He was not a bully. He was kind. His hair was dark and curly. His teeth were white as cream. He remembered the words of all the cowboy songs and would teach you if you ask. He knew the names of all the wildflowers and when the moon would rise and set and when the tides came in or out. He was, in fact, the only god living in the whole of Greentown, Illinois, during the 20th century that Douglas Spaulding knew of. And right now, he and Douglas were hiking out beyond town on another warm and marble-round day, the sky blue-blown grass reaching high, the creeks bright with mirror waters fanning over white stones. It was a day as perfect as the flame of a candle. Douglas walked... And something was happening that day. <laughs> Ray Bradbury, you're listening to the story I read some years ago, your story, your first thoughts on hearing it beginning oh it's it's uh, that's a good reading incidentally <laughs> very touching uh, when people give me back to myself uh, it's a great experience uh, I'm gonna go see the play of dandelion wine over in Manistee Michigan this weekend and I saw it up in uh, Northern California two weeks ago another production and I sit there and I cry all evening because mm -hmm. it's my family it's my childhood it's my grandma and grandpa and my brother and my friend John Huff huh and uh, all these things I remember from my childhood. So I've got I've to cry every time <laughs> I see it. <laughs> this was a, then this was autobiographical to a great extent. Yeah, well, course. a great thing happened a few years ago. Uh, I lived in Tucson, Arizona for a while when I was 12, and I had this friend named John Huff, and I wrote the, uh, I didn't see him for, you know, 40 years or so. And, oh, about 10 years ago, I got a letter in the mail 
And I opened it, and tears burst from my eyes. My wife and my daughters looked at me and said, Daddy, what's going on? Why are you crying? I said, my God, here's John Huff. I put him in my book, and I haven't seen him since we were both 13. And now he's writing me, and the letter said, my son came home from school the other day. We're reading Dandelion Wine in school. And my son came home and said, Daddy, did you ever know anyone named Ray Bradbury? And I said, yes. He says, well, our name is in the book here, John <laughs> Huff and John Huff Jr. And so immediately John picked up the telephone, called information, and I couldn't get through to me. He wrote me a letter. And I went down to Tucson to renew my friendship uh, 40 years later. This is a few years ago. Now we're back with our friendship right where we were in 1932. So it's all in the book, and it's all part of my background. Yeah. What's so beautiful about that, of course, uh, you, you also write such contrasting works, but the beautiful part of that was your friend, John Huff. You, you that is Douglas Spaulding, Ray Bradbury, about 12 and he admires this guy so much. They're going to leave. This guy's father is transferred. Is he ever going to? So he gets mad. That's right. That's right. And, uh, yeah, well, you don't forgive people if they go away. I mean, how can you possibly go away because I love you and you're my best friend and I'm never going to see you again? So when I wrote the book, I had to put him in the book and remember how terrible it was for for our parting. Well, the th thing that's interesting about Ray Bradbury, about you, <clears throat> is that your scope, you know, here's this very moving memoir in the form of a novel, and then bang, you got Fahrenheit, 451. Right. Yeah. You got Martian Chronicles, you have science, because you're known primarily, I suppose, for science fiction, aren't you? Well, yes and no, that, that label's convenient. Yeah, yeah. It's like calling Raymond Chandler a detective writer. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's a, he's a great American novelist, mm -hmm. huh? And so is James Cain. And they're neglected by certain intellectuals who look down upon them because supposedly they write detective fiction, and it's simply not true. They're, I go back and reread Chandler every five years, and James Kane too. I learn from them, and uh, that means they're good writers. Talking about you go back and reread, so we're talking about books now. You're, you're by your hometown is Waukegan, that's right, which you've come to revisit and mm -hmm. to talk to the. Uh, Illinois Library Association. Mm, that's correct. And you said read, and so we come to books. Now, your formal education, your formal education was limited. Yeah, just to high school. High school. And when I graduated from high school, I went to the library. We got a huge library in L.A., downtown library, gigantic place with dozens of rooms. And I worked my way through all those rooms over a period of about 10 years. And when I was 28, I graduated from the library. Mm. But I'd read all the important essays of the world, all the important poems, all the important plays. And uh, there are not that many, you know, really, when you think about it. A couple hundred here, a few dozen there. And uh, I read all the important novels and the best essays on literature and science and what have you. So that I got a very good education just by going there every single day that I could. Stick with that because that's the theme of your, yeah. of your talk. Yeah. Uh, the day of this conversation. So there's the library, and you know college, and there's you know literature one or whatever. There's no courses. And it's your own. You went there. What did you do? You went to the library. You were the kid now. You're 17. Mm -hmm. You're about 17. Finished right. high school. 18. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you just go in and run mad. You find authors, and when you find someone you love madly, you read everything by them. That The secret of all reading is going crazy, and you start with primitive things. Like uh, when I was uh, uh, nine years old, I discovered Tarzan, so I read everything by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And he, that's lodged in me forever. I read all the Martian books by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And if I hadn't, and if I hadn't loved them madly, I would never have done the Martian Chronicles 15 years later. It's this process of discovering yourself and others, opening Jules Verne and finding yourself there. You're not out to find other authors. You're looking for mirror images of yourself. Once you find them, then you'll never stop. Then you found or H.G. Wells later. I collected comic strips like crazy. I collected all of Prince Valiant for 30 years. I wrote love letters to, to Harold Foster, who drew it. And because I professed my love for him and Prince Valiant, he sent me two immense Sunday panels that are priceless, you know, the originals. And I have them in my uh, study at home. Uh, I suppose they're worth about $20,000 a piece now. Mm. But uh, I'm never going to sell them. I'll give them to the uh, Library of Congress, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So it's this kind of, of, of doing what you want to do in spite of people criticizing you, collecting Buck Rogers, collecting Flash Gordon and Tarzan. I still have all those strips put away. And once or twice a year, I get them out and look at them. And the same excitement, huh? They haven't aged. They haven't become childish. Uh, they, they had the element of goodness, quality in them, just as Jules Verne had, and they, they last forever. What is it that led you, now you to read reading? What, was it something in the family? Was it, what, was it her older brother or someone? What led you to have this hunger for? Well, I came from work? a publishing family. My uh, great-grandfather had uh, published newspapers in Waukegan, they had a printing uh, operation here in Chicago. They printed law briefs, so did my grandfather. And he had his own newspaper. And I grew up in a library in my grandparents' house, a pretty good library there in the front room. And a whole section of fairy tales, uh, Alice in Wonderland, the Oz books that my Aunt Neva mm -hmm. read to me. And she's the one that changed my life, and she's still alive. She's 82. She brought me down to the Art Institute. She took the Chicago Opera. She made costumes for them. She took me to the Century of Progress Fair, which drove me wild with excitement. So her impact on my life was the beginning of everything when I was three. Yeah. That's, that's the, but you mentioned publishing family. Waukegan's son, was it? No. Uh, yeah, uh, before well, it was the new son. The family known Ward Just's family. Ward Just, yes, yes. the novelist. His father to his family published in Waukegan, yeah. too. The, well, the, they had a, my great-grandfather was mayor of the town ah. for a while. It doesn't mean much, but nevertheless he yeah. was. Huh? And uh, the uh, growing up with that background and the love of books from my grandparents' side of the family. So it important. leads to an obvious question, yeah. doesn't it? The question, reading today, books, the effects of electronics, you know, TV, radio. So we come to reading. Mm -hmm. So what have your observations been as you, because you receive letters from people, I know you go around the yes. country, aside from your writing. Well, I, I sat at the uh, library uh, uh, meeting today in front of 800 librarians, I would say. It's time that immediately, next week, next month, we test all of the first grade teachers and all of the kindergarten teachers to make sure they're teaching reading. And we, we have a test period for the next year 
And if at the end of that year, all those teachers are not teaching reading, they get fired mm -hmm. because we're losing another generation now. And you can't read books in the second grade unless you learn to read them in the first or the eighth grade. We have all these, these refined scientific uh, study classes in the seventh grade, but no one can read them, so they're, they're useless. So we have to be rough. We have to say to teachers, you've got to take the same test you take and I take. What is it? When I publish a new book, if you don't like it, I'm out of work. Huh? I stick my neck out. Mm. And if you don't like it, if the librarians don't like it, I'm fired. So it's got to be with teachers in the first grade. If at the end of the first year we test you, we test the students, and you haven't taught them to read, there goes our civilization. So it's, it's a crisis, a terrible crisis, and you cannot cripple these children. So we'll give you one year to pull up your socks. Huh? And now the quality teachers hearing me say this will know what I'm talking about. The ones who don't teach reading will hate me because I'm going to test them and I'm going to get them fired if I can. So the question of uh, teaching reading yep. and reading, we come to, because something happens to language too, doesn't it? I mean, there's something called oral tradition. We were talking about something else. Your own experience, your own life yep. seems to say it all. Yeah, well, and the, first of all, it's fun, it's exciting, and uh, the challenge comes if you teach reading in the first grade and everyone begins to move along with that. There's a period that comes somewhere around the third or fourth grade where the boys, first of all, the boys haven't caught up. Girls are all superior in, the, in grammar school. They're, they are the readers, and boys have to be motivated. But as time passes, if you're lucky, the boys begin to catch up. But only if you motivate them, only if you hook them. And the way to do that is with imagination and with science fiction. It sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, no, no. but I've seen it proven time and again. Teachers and librarians come to me, and parents and kids who grow up later and come to me on the street and say, thank God for you. I said, what did I do? They said, I've never read a book until I read one of yours, and then I was hooked. So you've got to work double time on boys because they are not readers. They're not natural readers. And uh, the girls are going to take good care of themselves because they grow up to be the buyers of books. The bookstores are full of women. They're not full of men. And most books are bought by women. So if you're going to have readers, you've got to pay attention to those boys before you lose them to the streets. I was thinking about uh, when you're talking about reading and and the impulse there. How how then, aside from the school, there has to be something else because we think of diversion, diversion so much. There was less diversion than this today. That's true. And less easy way. You know, take uh, the program Sesame Street, one of the mm -hmm. better programs. Mm -hmm. Yet there was a young educator named Neil Postman is. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm -hmm, Amusing mm -hmm. Ourselves to Death. His point is it's too easy. You know, sometimes, because reading is an adventure, learning is an adventure. It's, right. it's also hurling, hurling certain obstacles, too. Well, it's, uh, I think each of us has a, uh, an automatic buffer state in there somewhere where we know we're full up on a certain thing. And perhaps uh, easiness can be a threat, but I've observed in my own daughters over the years, we were watching 77 Sunset Strip one night, 25 years, 30 years ago, and my nine-year-old daughter got up and left the room. 
And I said, oh, where are you going? She says, I'm going to go read a book. She said, oh, I said, how come? She says, I know what's going to happen next. Huh? Mm. So she was full up. Uh, so I, we grew up uh, on cowboys and Indians every afternoon, every Saturday afternoon. Uh, they were pretty stupid, you know, most of them. Uh, Jack Holt and uh, uh, the Tom Mix, we loved them dearly. But it's pretty moronic. And, but a certain time comes in your life when you're ready for Jules Verne, huh? And so, and you say, goodbye, Tom Max. I love yeah. you, and I always will love yeah. you. And I wouldn't dream to criticize you later yeah. because you're part of my root system. Talking to Ray Bradbury, who's sort of multifaceted as a writer or various forms of writing, whether it be uh, gothic <coughs> literature, whether it be literature of the future, you know, it's a sort of a philosophical Orwellian book like Fahrenheit 451 or very moving memoirs and short stories. Ray Bradbury recently in, in uh, visiting Waukegan, his hometown. You, you spoke of uh, your aunt and others influencing you, surroundings, and there's Norman Corwin in the 30s and 40s and during pre-World War II and <coughs> during it, perhaps the premier, he he lifted the standards of radio yes, indeed. immeasurably. Yeah. I, I listened to a broadcast on a Sunday afternoon sometime in the autumn of 1939, I believe, and uh, I didn't know who I was listening to. And whoever it was was throwing a voice around the world 20 or 30 times, bouncing it off the stratosphere, and the voice was echoing back, and I said, my God, what is this? Who is this? And when the show was over, it was announced it was Norman Corwin. Never heard of him before, but I was hooked. Huh? And then he began to have a regular weekly series. And I lived for that. Just uh, uh, I had to choose between Bob Hope and Norman Corwin. And most of the time, I chose Norman Corwin. Huh? And uh, so when I was uh, 27 years old and enamored of, of Norman's work, I published my first book, A Dark Carnival. And I uh, got his uh, phone number and address from a secretary at CBS who wasn't supposed to give it to me. But nevertheless, I sent him a copy of the book with a note saying, Dear Mr. Corwin, if you like this book half as much as I love you, huh, mm -hmm. uh, I want to buy you a drink some afternoon. A week later, I got a phone call from Norman Corwin saying, You're not buying me drinks. I'm buying you dinner. And so he bought me dinner and listened to my dreams. And we became friends for the next 45 years. Uh, he, immense influence on my life. I, I can't possibly guess at how, uh, when I got the job of writing Moby Dick uh, back uh, 30... Well, did you, did you read the movie Moby Dick? I sure did, yeah. The one with uh, Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck and yeah. Orson Welles as Captain, the, uh, not Captain, uh, uh, Father Mapple. Father yes. Mapple. Yeah. And the first person I called when I got the job was Norman Corwin. Mm. And I went and had lunch with him. I said, help? Mm. <laughs> How am I going to do this? And Norman, of course, said, well, go on being the poet you are. And my first radio show uh, back in 1947 was pure Norman Corwin. I called him. I said, you want to hear yourself on radio tonight? Mm. This is your child. This is your son. This is your student. And uh, it was pure Norman Corwin. I learned later how to write radio shows that weren't all Norman Corwin, mm. but I had to start with him. Well, you talk about reading. He encouraged reading because, mm. remember, he, he'd also have a series with Charles Lawton, others oh, reading, reading from the Bible, 
Thomas Shakespeare, Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe. Oh, be- I still Whitman. have a recording of that. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. A Time on the River. Oh, yes, and yeah. a score by Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. Every time I play it, I weep. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So there was someone, radio, mm-hmm. reading radio, encouraging reading. We That's come right. back to that again. That's right. Well, radio, of course, is, is making a comeback, uh, mainly because of the automobile. Uh, I've been oh. thinking in the last few years of forming a audio uh, a tape uh, uh, company called Gridlock Incorporated <laughs> because you're going to be on the freeway in gridlock a good part of your life and you might as well have some good tapes with you. So in the last uh, eight years, I've done a, t- uh, a radio audio series called Bradbury 13 and a brilliant young man out in Salt Lake, uh, Mike McDonough, has adapted and produced and directed these series and uh, and done all the sound effects and uh, brilliant series. So radio is coming back definitely. You feel that, yeah. Oh yeah. <coughs> you say because of the radios and cars, mm-hmm. but also see, there's something. Years ago, I got in an argument with someone. Uh, he spoke of TV <coughs> as the cool medium. What was McLuhan as a matter McLuhan, of yes. Marshall McLuhan, yeah. and TV as a cool medium, and radio as a hot medium. Meaning, of course, it's reference to jazz, cool jazz and hot jazz. Cool jazz being more cerebral in nature than hot jazz, more visceral. And I said, <coughs> it's got to be exactly the opposite. Yes, you're you right. It's the opposite because if you watch TV, it's there. You see, for instance, the perfect case was Seeing Under Milkwood of Dylan Thomas. I saw it on TV. A magnificent company did it. Yes, yes. The American Conservatory Theater. It <coughs> was a wonderful, but it wasn't my Welsh village. Then you hear it on radio or you heard the recording, you hear the words, but you imagine in your head is the set. Right. In your head is the village. In your head is the what Captain Cat looks like or polygard. That's right. So therefore, radio <coughs> is the medium that picks the imagination mm-hmm. of the audience that's more right. than TV. So yeah. that's a cool medium. Yeah, it used to irritate me listening to McLuhan or, or reading, trying to read him. I thought everything should be reversed that he talked yeah. about. You felt that. Isn't it? Yeah. I remember it was it was it was it, we met it was at some college on the north side, and I I would, couldn't believe it when he said, "TV is the cool medium. It mm. involves ser- the cerebral aspect more." Than, mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out. No, he, being a veteran of both, one way or another, well, he, for he better was, or for worse. He he wrote books no one read. And if they'd read them, they would have understood that he was wrong. And uh, he, those were books. His books were used to, to put against doors yeah, to hold yeah. them open. Nonetheless, it was an attractive idea, that yeah. medium is the massage. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> but coming back to Ray Bradbury, so what is your out? What do you see as far as reading, curiosity, imagination, as far as the well, country's Well, if we do... As I say, if we test the teachers and make everyone read and then make sure you hook the boys, then we've got a great future. And then our education will go up Mm. and then uh, the curiosity and the fun of being alive will go up. You go to London, you get into a cab there and cross London, you'll get into a discussion on literature. Uh, They have learned to read and uh, uh, almost every cab driver you come across, you want to talk politics, they'll talk politics. You can do that in New York, but it's it's emotional politics, not practical. Mm. Huh? And in London or in Paris, 
yeah, you'll have people who know what you're talking about when you talk about the world. And the reason to do all this is to have fun being alive. Right? Now, there's no serious intellectual reason. We should never do that because it scares people. Uh, just the fun f- you know, for the me. Joy, you, know, you know what? The delight of reading. That's right. The delight. It's an adventure. That's right. Of course. There, you know, a lot of books people have never read. When I was a young writer, I read books on the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, what the eye was. Because I wanted to know how to listen to the world, how to smell the world, how mm. to see the world. And those books are all fascinating. Yeah. Huh? Most people have never read them. It's a funny thing. First, when I first read Treasure Island, for instance, mm. wow, it was exciting. Yep. It, was exci- it wasn't a question of I had to read it. It was exciting <clears throat> to read. That's right. My brothers gave me a copy. I was a kid. I didn't understand Ring Lardner's satire. Uh-huh. But, I, but I understood that ball player, that dumb Ball player Jack Keefe, and you know me, Al, and I got a kick because I like baseball. So I got a kick out of this guy and the spelling and the funny. Never occurred to me that uh, that uh, Roger was being ironic. It didn't matter. I enjoyed. Yes. There's a great, there's a fine writer who's been neglected. I've got alibi Ike and all those things put away from you know 45 years ago. And uh, Joey Joey Brown did a couple of Ring Lardner things. Alibi Ike was one of them. Alibi Ike, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because he could cover, not it wasn't just about baseball, it was ironic with these characters. Oh, yes. And also the dark side of them, too. Oh, indeed. He, he could hurt you, yes. Haircut and, and champion. Yeah. He, the, John Sayles, the young writer, did a movie called Eight Men Out on the Black Sox scandal of 19. I never saw that. I'm 19. curious. Mm-hmm. No, if you saw it, you'd have seen me in it. I was my, in it. <laughs> my God. The my point God. is, John Sayles did the role of Lardner. He looked mm-hmm. like Lardner. Mm-hmm. And it was astonishing. As a, it was the disillusionment of a writer who loved this baseball team when they betrayed. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. he didn't hit the big boy hard enough. But back to Ray. So, uh, the good yourself, it's been, you started to write way back when you, before you met Corwin. Yeah, when I was 12. When you were 12. Yeah. And uh, the obvious question, again, usually is a schedule. Do, do you, are you an are you a writer who improvise? I mean, do you, is your schedule held a skelter, or do you hew to a pretty No, it's, a, it's held a skelter and emotional and intuitive. Uh-huh. I never know what I'm going to do any one day. I get out of bed, and when I'm lying in bed in, early in the morning, my muse talks to me, huh? whatever that is. Inside my head, there's a pachinko game going on, huh? and all these characters are running around yelling at each other. And when the one that yells the loudest gets written that morning, so I got out of bed, run to the typewriter, and two hours later I finished a short story or part of a play or, or part of an essay. And it's all emotional. I write endings first, beginnings, middles, and then mm. I put them together later and say, how does this, how do they all fit? I don't worry about it. I, I wrote a novel which came out last year, Graveyard for Lunatics, about Hollywood when I used to work at the various studios. But it was inspired by a journey I made coming back from Europe on the Elizabeth II six years ago. And I saw a man uh, with a destroyed face, like he'd been shoved into a furnace and burned and melted. Huh? And when I saw him in the uh, hallway going to my cabin, uh, two seconds after I passed him, I burst into tears. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't imagine how he had lived with that face. Uh, when I got um, over to Paris, I couldn't forget that man. I saw him every night at a table nearby having dinner with his wife and daughter and laughing and enjoying life and drinking champagne. made me ashamed of myself, you know, that this man could find joy in the world through love and family. 
So I got to Paris, and I had a portable battery-operated typewriter, completely silent. And every night at midnight, I would sit at my typewriter in the dark, couldn't see what I was doing. And my wife was asleep, and I wasn't bothering her. And I would do six or seven pages every night at midnight for, for 10 nights. And I wrote 150 pages of a novel about a man I didn't know. Huh? And when I got home, I spent another year writing, finishing 600 pages without ever reading it. Huh? And I didn't want to know what I'd done the day before. And at the end of a year, I took the book out and read it and said, hey, it's okay. I think I'll go on with it. But it's got to be intuitive. It's got to be mysterious. Uh, you mustn't know what you're doing. I met Fellini in Rome uh, years ago. And I said to him, Federico, I hear that when you are making a film, you don't look at rushes. Is that true? He said, that's right. I said, why do you do that? He said, I don't want to know what I'm doing. I want, I want to beckon my intuition out by ignoring it. Huh? I turn away and I do something. And then it taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, would you mind putting this in? And, but that's the way to write. That's the way to act. That's the way to live. You know, that's what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right in this, this conversation, this audience can guess it's wholly improvisational. Yeah. No net. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole point is precise. And so it's the way you work. You... you yeah. It's hunch, intuition, and impulse. Yeah, no net. That's, I'm going to write that no down. Net. That's my next article. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the point is, it's not that you have got planned in your mind, beginning, middle, end. No. No, it's this. You, you, the fun would be spoiled then, because I never know what my characters are going to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Fellini. Long ago, he was working on, doing some interviews in Europe, the Sina Citta, I think is the place yes. to go. He was doing the dubbing for Fellini Eight and a Half, okay, of the English yeah. voices dubbing. But while there, he, he says, sure, come on, ask me some questions, and had the tape recorder. And I says, well, when you did, when you do something, is there always a touch of autobiography? He says, if I did the tale of a fish, it would be autobiographical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He made it, of course, every yeah, aspect. Nah. But the one thing I never forgot, and you can take off on this, uh, when you did, I said, why did you choose for La Dolce Vita, the central figure, a gossip columnist, Marcello, a yeah. gossip columnist, yeah. guys that's, we find them in every city, yeah. tidbits, gossip. Why did you choose him? He has no value. Yeah, one day yeah, it's yeah. Christ in the plane, next day it's a black guy by this woman. He says, because the gossip columnist in our society today is the Herodotus of our time. Mm -hmm. He is our historian. Yeah. He's thinking how trivia becomes <clears throat> part of our very lives. Sure. And you can't tell trivia from the real. And so he hit something very strong very there. Oh, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, he, well, he's, he, he's absolutely correct. And see, we, have, we don't trust our politicians. And we don't have royalty, so the substitute, this is a cliche, our, our substitute royalty is motion picture stars and radio stars and rock performers. And, of course, the rock performers are the worst of the lot. I mean, a really dreadful bunch. Uh, but they have talent, you know, and we have to recognize that. But really, you don't want to be around them. So, therefore, their material, they're our royalty, they're our bad royalty, and sometimes excellent royalty. And when Clark Gable dies, or John Wayne especially, when, when he died, a whole history of imagination died with him. We all believed that we knew him. And, and we all, when I saw him on the street once, my immediate reaction was, you know, hi. And, of course, I didn't know him. But uh, Fellini touched on that yeah, very beautifully. That so when talking to Ray Bradbury, all thoughts come to mind.
Ray Bradbury, the writer of all forms, as now I know, writes from impulse and, and uh, improvisatory pulls uh, that he's been visiting his hometown, Waukegan, Illinois, and talking before the uh, gathering of librarians, state librarians, on the importance of reading, of course. So your experience as a movie writer. We know that in the <laughs> past, Faulkner talked about that Fitzgerald and they had times that are not the happiest in the world. Mm, yes. Now your experience, and as it, what, was there a freedom that you had? Well, here and there, you have to learn how to trick these people. I went to work for Universal, uh, writing my first film in 1952. It came from outer space. They hired me for $300 a week, as I recall, for six weeks and to do an outline and a treatment. Well, like a fool, I gave them 120 pages. That's a complete screenplay mm -hmm. plus. Huh? And all the screenwriter had to do is go in and retype my, uh, my treatment. And he told me later, and he, he's told a lot of people this, uh, and so that's okay. I was a fool. I was enthused. But along the way, uh, they, they, they gave me an idea of what they wanted. And I said, well, that's not a very good idea. Well, isn't that, it's a heck of a way to start employment, isn't it? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do two versions, one for you and one for me. Huh? And you can compare them at the end of four or five weeks. If you decide to go with your version, I'll quit. Huh? If you decide to go with my version, I'll finish the job. They said, well, won't you write better for your version? I said, yes, I will, because it's a better idea. <laughs> well, by God, they accepted the deal, and they employed me. And I spent, I don't know, two or three weeks doing two versions of my idea, of their idea and mine. I turned them in at the end of three weeks, and by God, they came back and said, we're going to do yours. Huh? They had enough sense to know that their idea was no good. Huh? And it uh, doesn't happen often. Mm. But So I went ahead and finished the job. The film was made. But you have to learn how to see what I was doing there. Uh, or sometimes they'll give you an idea and you say, oh, that's brilliant. That's just great. That's what I'm going to do. And you go off and do your idea. And you bring it back and say, here's your idea. Thank <laughs> you. God, it was great. And they're, they're ashamed to admit that you haven't done their idea. Huh? Yeah. And they'll say, oh, yeah, but that's it all right, huh? Yeah. Uh, not all the time. Not, <laughs> sometimes they'll say, oh, come on, you're, that's a lot of malarkey, huh? And, but then uh, my other experiences, a uh, variety of things. I was working at MGM on the Martian Chronicles uh, 32 years ago, and I predicted as soon as I tuned, turned it in, I'd be fired, and I was, because uh, it was before the space age. And, uh, but along the way, they came to me, and they were doing a remake of King of Kings with Jeffrey Hunter playing Christ, huh? and a um, uh, pretty good cast. And they'd finished shooting it in Spain, and they were coming home. And the head of the studio came to me and said, we have no ending for the film. We have no ending for the King of Kings. And I said, what? He said, no. I, I said, have you tried the Bible? And they said, yeah, but we want you to give us an ending. We want Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Ray, huh? So I went to work on, I wrote the narration for the film. Orson Welles spoke it, and I wrote the ending. And I had a wonderful time going back through the Bible, parts of which I hadn't read in many years. And uh, the film came out, and it was okay. But uh, along the way, Judas Iscariot began to vanish from the picture. And I was working with Maggie Booth, who was one of the great film editors of all time, late, nice lady, in her 90s now, still working on occasion. She helped start MGM Studios in 1922. 
So being with her was magnificent. She taught me about film and editing, and I worked with Miklas Rozha, the composer, a wonderful man again. I was privileged to be with him. And I spoke my own narration onto a tape and went to the recording studio and with a full symphony orchestra, heard my voice come off the screen with my narration. So along the way, though, Judas Iscariot began to vanish from the picture. And Maggie Booth said, will you go to talk to the head of the studio and ask him why this is happening? So I made an appointment with Saul Siegel, who was the head of the studio, went in for a meeting, and I said, Mr. Siegel, how come Judas Iscariot is being cut out of the picture? He said, well, we're afraid of making an anti-Semitic film. I said, <laughs> I said what? He says, yeah, I'm afraid. I said, wait a minute now. This film's coming out next Easter, correct? Yes. It's going to be seen by 20 million Baptists? Yes. 40 million Catholics? Yes. 70 million Lutherans? Yes. Two Unitarians? Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, now, when they all stagger out into the light of day, uh, that Easter Sunday, and they all turn to each other and say, who cut Judas Iscariot out of the film? The answer is Saul Siegel. <laughs> well... Judas got rehired immediately. That's very funny. I didn't have to say any more. Yeah. So those are some of my experiences with the, the studios. So it's a question of maintaining a certain humor perspective, but you also got out with those guys. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. what you're talking about. But talking to Ray Bradbury, what are the th I suppose the obvious question is this moment now or this period in your life, is there a project you're on, I assume. Yeah, I just published a new book called Yes Tomorrow, Obvious Answers to Impossible Futures, because I've... Yes Tomorrow? Yes Tomorrow. Uh, oh, Yes Tomorrow. Yes, yeah, Yes Tomorrow. And uh, it's a book on architecture, city planning, museums, my work for the Disney people on Epcot, and my work on the United States Pavilion at the New York World's Fair 26 years ago, and my influence on three different malls that have been built in California. I got into this because I hated what I saw happening to cities in Chicago, in New York, in L.A., and they all were in the state of collapse, and Chicago's on its way back up. New York has a long way to go. Uh, L.A. is still learning, huh? But that's what the book is about. Uh, my love of cities, my intense love of cities, and my desire to help resurrect them. So now it's an architecture figure, isn't mm -hmm. it? So you always were interested in... in and the idea of architecture. Because of Chicago, yeah. 1933, when I came here. Of course, the World's Fair. The World's Fair, beautiful. And, of course, Chicago, Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright and the tradition of yep. skyscraper began here. Mm -hmm. so, yes. so, so you say you had influence on malls. What? You're not being an architect. What was it? A certain, it was uh, your vision. I'm a science fiction writer, which means I'm in yeah. love with architecture, mm -hmm. starting in 1928 with the science fiction magazines with the magnificent covers of Cities of the Future. Mm -hmm. And I began to design my own cities in, when I was 9, 10, 11 years old on paper. And uh, so um, I began to write about this. And then about 20 years ago, I wrote an article in the LA Times saying what the hell was wrong with LA that was dead, huh? And giving the solutions and doing my own blueprint, which they printed. And then a year later, the Glendale Galleria was built, one of the first malls in America. And the architect came, took me to lunch, and he says, how do you like your mall? I said, what? He says, that's yours. That's the article you wrote two years ago. I said, my God, am I allowed to say that? He said, yes. I said, my, I, I don't want any money, but I want the right to say I'm your father. huh?" Mm. And so I came into the firm, and I sat and consulted on other malls, Glendale Galleria, Westside Pavilion, 
and uh, as a sort of friend of the family. Well, that's it. So uh, this is a fascinating. You, sci- as a science fiction writer, you had the vision of what buildings are, yep. imagined uh, how they serve humans, or humans right. are in them. And so this became the basis of some of the buildings yep. actually yeah, constructed. Three, three malls now. Yeah. And I've also done some work on Euro Disney, which is opening mm-hmm. outside of Paris. Uh, April 12th, mm-hmm. I'm going to go over for the opening. And I've worked with the Disney people. I sat with Roy Disney and a lot of his friends, uh, John Hench, at the Disney studio four years ago because they called me on the phone and said, will you come in and tell us who we are? And I said, my God, don't you know? And they said, no, but we think you know us better, so we'll pay you to come in. Did you follow uh, Buckminster Fuller's Not that much. He came late in life for me. And I was already on my way, and uh, I only met him once. But I have total respect for him, and I'm sorry that we didn't Because he worked in that view. That's right. He was a scientist, of course, engineer. But he he worked on that vision idea that I'm improvising all the time. Again, you in writing. It's funny how your your ideas match his. Mm-hmm. His as the designer, architect, yeah. or whatever he, you call him, scientist. You as a writer, working from that same impulse, that, Im, that improvisatory idea, that idea of not saying, this is how it must end, mm-hmm. but leaving yourself open. That's right. Well, if you know cities at all. I grew up coming to Chicago all the time when I was seven, eight years old, ten years old. My mother would bring me down to the magic companies here, Mm -hmm. and I'd go up and look at the stuff. We couldn't afford to buy it. And every time they saw us coming in to one of these magic shops, uh, their hearts would fall because I wasn't going to buy anything. I came to browse, and Blackstone would be down here at the Oriental Theater. Blackstone the magician. yeah, Yeah, right. And so uh, I got to know him over the years, and now I know his his son, who is performing the same illusions 70 years later, huh? And uh, so Chicago played a big part yeah. in my life in uh, in sort of taking in all yeah. this w- wonderful yeah. material from the so city. I suppose that's perhaps the way to end this conversation. This is open-ended, too. And mm-hmm. anyway, but the idea that magic, that's the word I was looking for, I guess, magic, you go into these magic shops, you say, mm-hmm. Blackstone. Of course, you followed Houdini. That's right, know. yes. And uh, who was the other guy? Thurston. The Thurston, great. I Thurston. saw him just once. Yeah, uh, but you see, nonetheless, it was the magician. Yeah. And so that's... Yeah, people often about. say to me, are you a science fiction writer? I say, no, I'm a magician. No, that's great. Yeah, and there you go. That's well, it. Well, Ray Bradbury, what a delight meeting you at last and talking. Any bases, many we haven't touched. Any you feel like touching before we uh, say hail and farewell? <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> no, any, any, uh, just perhaps. Uh, uh, well, I have my own, uh, you know, I have my own uh, television series now. And what's Ray, yours Ray, is Ray that? Bradbury Theater. It's on every Friday night, and we've done 65 shows now. We're That's shooting. on what? It's show? on USA Cable. USA and Cable. we've done all these short stories of mine, and I've worked with people like Peter O'Toole, which is very exciting, and yeah. a lot of good people. So I hope maybe somewhere along the line, Late some Friday night, some people may tune in, and I'm very proud of what we've done. I thought of the perfect ending for this conversation as we began. With the ending of the story, Dandelion Wine, could you set perhaps that last scene as they're about to say goodbye, uh, Doug, that young boy, and his best friend, John Huff? 
Yeah, well, he, the Doug says uh, uh, to John, you know, will you remember me? And John says, yes, I will. He says, well, Doug turns away and closes his eyes. He says, what color are my eyes? And, and John tries to guess at the color, and it's wrong. And Doug says, see, you've forgotten already. And this terrible heartbreak, and John leaves, and, and Doug yells after him, you're not my friend anymore. You're the enemy. And he weeps, and that's the end of the story. <laughs>